Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. There's a lot of information about how to feed a baby and how to clean a baby and how to make a baby sleep and, you know, all of this. The physical aspect is very much taken care of and we have a lot of support. And you have, you know, lactating nurses and maternity nurses and all that stuff. Uh, what we have very little is how do we create good attachment? How does a child get to have secure attachment and belonging. It comes from those few first weeks and months of the child's life. What environment, physical environment, can we create? And the physical environment starts with us, the parents, the adults in the child's life, or other carers, that can support this child in his development to being. I'm Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with Carole Debanné, having trained as a Montessori educator in prenatal for six years and drawing on her own experience as a mother of three, Carole coaches and mentors on the subjects of bringing greater peace and well-being to parents, their children and the world, based on a project, Becoming a Parent is Love Enough. Hello, Carole. Hello. Thanks a lot for being with us for the Harvest podcast. Thank you, Rose. So you have a project called Becoming a Parent is Love Enough. Let me ask you the question straightforward. Becoming a Parent is Love Enough, Carole. The short answer is no. The thing is, all parents really, really love their children. And yet, when we become a parent, it's the one... Well, the most important role we get to do in this life, we are creating and raising a human being. And it's a huge responsibility. And we do it the most... We leave it to nature. We leave it to, you know, I mean, making a baby is the most natural thing. And, of course, becoming a parent follows that. But it does, and it would make a huge difference if there was some knowledge, information, wisdom that used to be passed on when people lived in the village community, which we no longer have because we have moved away from our families of origin, from having, you know, the support system. And so just the love of mother, father, and the whole concept, to be honest, of the family. I read in an article in The Atlantic a, a couple of years ago, the concept of the family, the nucleus family, the mother, father, 2.5 children. It was a mistake, he says, because it was never meant to be like this. The responsibility of raising a child was never meant to fall on mother and father on their own. And so, no matter how much they love their children, some knowledge can make a huge difference. What more than love do you need as a parent to raise your children? So you need inquiry and curiosity into your own past. You need to look back a little bit at your own childhood, first of all, and see what you liked from your childhood, what you didn't like, what survival mechanisms you have put in place, because today they are the ones running the show. And parenting has the, is the art of showing us who we are. When we parent, it comes up for us. And our children, I'm sure 
you have had the experience being a mother yourself, uh, have a knack of pressing all the buttons that... Uh, <laughs> totally. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, and if we have trauma that is not healed, it'll come up. The trauma is, in a way, the most obvious one. What is more um, insidious and scary is the stuff that we don't even know that is hiding, lurking from our past, that we have shut off, that we have um, just decided to bury, um, and it comes up for us. And then what we do is unwittingly, unbeknown to ourselves, we just dump it on our children. And in even the most if we loving think, way possible. <laughs> <laughs> and I notice also, even if you analyze, if you think about it, sometimes as a reflex, even the thing you don't like you're doing, you will still do it when you're like annoyed or yeah, I don't You hear your mind. mother's voice coming it's out of your mouth. <laughs> don't you just? <laughs> I know I have, despite all my awareness. And I have, so I studied Montessori child development from prenatal, from conception to six years. So I knew exactly how I wanted to bring up my children. And there's two things I had not accounted for. And I knew also the stages of the child's development, which is something that parents could also benefit from learning. So that's the other thing. Knowing, and so what I would like, my project that you mentioned at the beginning, is about accompanying uh, parents in the nine months leading to birth and the nine months following birth, which is the, the area, our life as parents and our children's lives, that it lacks support. There's a lot of information about how to feed a baby and how to clean a baby and how to make a baby sleep and, you know, all of this. The physical aspect is very much taken care of and we have a lot of support. And you have, you know, lactating nurses and maternity nurses and all that stuff. Uh, what we have very little is how do we create good attachment? How does a child get to have secure attachment and belonging. It comes from those few first weeks and months of the child's life. What environment, physical environment, can we create? And the physical environment starts with us, the parents, the adults in the child's life, or other carers, that can support this child in his development to being. Because there are all the issues that we have today that you read about and all the statistics that tell us that children and adolescents are more than ever depressed and anxious and self-harming. All this comes from, not from just seeing the things that they see on social media, which is already a huge part, but from lack of a well-being inside that stems from our early childhood. Some people, though, would say, oh, you're thinking uh, too much, uh, just let it be. Well, so it depends when. Yes, I'm, and that's another also thing that I find parents lack, is presence, being in the present moment. And so sometimes when you find that, let's say everything is going haywire in your family, and it's a moment where you would want to necessarily scream, in, what if you just sat on the floor and played with your children or just let everything go and just, just laughed and just piled and hugged or just be in the moment instead of just trying to correct and teach a lesson and because we live in the future with our children. We rarely That's live in the present. Yeah. We are constantly thinking, if I, don't, if I don't tell them now that they should be doing their homework, then they're going to develop bad habits. If I don't teach them how to eat properly, then they're never going to be able to sit at a table and have good manners. If I, you know, don't... But we don't think that the fact that we are so punitive is breaking the connection. 
And this break of connection is actually much more damaging than the correction that we are doing. So one of the first things in my map of clarity is conscious connection instead of correction. So if a child does something really wrong, probably depends on the age, what would you advise to do as an adult? And you want your child to change, uh, um, it's like a repetitive thing that you don't like, what would you do? Well, there is something called collaborative problem solving. So if it's recurring, yes, yes, and it's becoming, it's like, you know, really affecting the lives of your child and the family, then you actually need to collaboratively problem solve because the child at all ages can help find solutions and the advantage of it's a lengthier process than just dishing out the uh, rule and the solution and the desired behavior but when you problem solve collaboratively first of all you inquire into what it is but they also want to know that they are heard and that they can have some agency over their lives. And so we start from very early on to give them the opportunity to exercise and practice making decisions, for example, because life is all about choices and decisions. At any point in time, do I eat the kiwi or the chocolate? You know, do I the... And so we actually, that's one of the things, for example, that we do from very early on, even with a child that doesn't speak yet, do you want to sit here or on the floor to have your milk? Point. <laughs> Do you want to brush your teeth now or later? Or in five minutes, or in five minutes, yeah. as long as it suits us, the adult. So, you know, the, the framework is very important. But within that framework, to have some freedom and to know how to allow the child to have freedom within those limits is hugely important. During harvest, Carol made a speech about education just after Alexandra Asseli, a beloved speaker in Kaplankaya, who talked about which ancestors do we want to be. Carol shared about her map of clarity, each starting later being something to remember when we raise children. Starting map with M for modeling. You are a model for your child and it's important to be a model for them to rely on. A for acceptance, acceptance of ourselves and the child without any hidden agenda. P is for presence. For the CLARITY acronym, let's listen to Stephanie, who listened attentively to Carol. C was, I think, for conscious connection and uh, and not correction, this I like she really mentioned. Uh, and uh, a child really need to be, uh, to feel connected. L for listening, and that was a challenging, challenging one for me. A, I think, was for awareness, uh, awareness of yourself. Of course, she, she really puts also this emphasis about uh, you first, and uh, and then awareness, of course, of the feeling and uh, what you go through. R is for respect, respecting the difference, respecting ourselves, and respecting the environment. Um, I is for independence, and uh, she says she never put uh, children behind bars. Trust, trust, uh, trust in yourself, and trust uh, in the child, and that the child uh, can trust himself very early. And um, and the why is for you, 
and uh, it always uh, starts with you and it, uh, it ends also with you. What led you to inquire so much about parenthood? So I, I'm going to say most definitely my own childhood, obviously. I grew up in a war-torn country. I was the middle daughter of three. I, there was a lot of survival involved in my childhood. Also, I was apparently going to die before I was born. And so uh, that in itself was a story of survival. And then in the womb, in, ah, in, in okay. utero. So my mother had a placenta previa, which she didn't know or... Anyway, in those days, they didn't have scans every, you know, two weeks <laughs> uh, to be able to tell them what's going on. So they did a blood test and uh, they told her, you're coming in now. And they cut her open. Actually, she had me by cesarean. Being the middle daughter, I realized, and my older sister was already had been here for four years. And she was obviously not happy at all by my coming into the world. And seeing as I was, at, I had escaped, if you like, death, my mother sort of poured out her love and, and care onto me and my older sister suffered greatly from it. And so I think from a very, very early on age, I mean, I've done a lot of healing work and I've done some constellation work to guide me to make sense a little bit of all of this and realize that I was like a parent to my sisters because another one came with the war a few years later and I, I kind of carried them and parented them because my parents, despite all the love in the world that they had for us, they didn't really know what they were doing. And when I became a parent coach, well, actually, when I became a Montessori educator before I became a parent coach, my grandmother, who had have, had, had seven children, looked at me and said, well, do you want to go study education, children's education for? I mean, I look, I, I raised seven children, didn't need to go learn about it. And then when I... You know, my, my journey led me to become a parent coach. My mother started to listen to what I was sharing uh, at the dinner table and, and with my children, and they did not agree with my way of parenting at all. Uh, and she said, you know, I realized when we became parents, we never questioned what we were doing. We just became parents. And I realized that, uh, you know, there's something to be said for actually doing this with more consciousness. You felt alone in your desire to raise your children with a consciousness? Yes. Uh, interestingly, I felt I was in conflict more than lonely. Conflict with, my, with the father of my children. So like I said earlier, I, was, I knew exactly how I wanted to raise them. What I had not accounted for was that the father of my children was going to have a completely different parenting style to mine. And um, I was, we were in constant conflict. And my parents also, where I very much like to go back, spend holidays, be with them, you know, give roots to my children, they were constantly fighting me. You're too lenient, you're not giving enough, you're not disciplined enough. Well, more important than discipline was conscious connection for me. When you want to be like a conscious parent, how do you get the other parent on board? I notice that sometimes one of the two parents, usually the mother, but not always, has read more books about parenting and it can create a conflict with the other parent who just reproduce uh, what is known or accuses the other one of over-analyzing things. Well, if together they have started the journey with my project, for example, of inquiring, then at least, hopefully, they are somewhat on the same page 
or they can get on the same page to agree on how they see themselves as a parent, how they imagine that they would deal with misbehavior, how they can be. And so if they, if they are given the awareness of how important it is to keep the connection rather than the correction at any given time, then they can remind themselves and each other uh, and not be in conflict as much as they would have been had they never had these conversations and this inquiry. So that's the first step. So it starts before the baby even came. And then, of course, there's going to be, you know, I mean, like I said, the father of my children was very strict. I wanted things done when he said, how he said. He was very controlling. And uh, I was, it was completely opposite to how I wanted my children to be raised. And yet, you know, I believe that things are as they should. And, uh, you know, our children chose us as parents. And uh, they have learned so much from how he is being, was being, is being with them and how I am being with them. Is your approach based on uh, your Montessori experience, your approach with the kids, or uh, do you have like some scientific uh, inquiries, books that you read, studies you read? Uh, it's a mix of both. I mean, Montessori is a doctor. Maria Montessori was a doctor, so it's very scientific already. But I've also done a lot of research myself and uh, a lot of reading and research into attachment, into growth mindset, into nonviolent communication, into uh, rational and emotive uh, behavioral and cognitive uh, therapy. So I bring in an NLP as well. I've trained as an NLP coach. Uh, so I bring in a lot of modalities and research and uh, into my approach to being a parent. Do you have a mentor? Is there someone that supported you in all this? Uh, different people along the way, not one, interestingly. I have felt, in that sense, quite alone. During your journey? Yes. And now, how do you feel today? I feel I'm stepping into a, um, a new role, one that is no longer one of survival, but one of owning all of this and sharing it, because I have been... Um, Well, I've been hiding a little bit under a rock for the last six years and uh, I'm ready to step out and share my work, my research and um, hopefully make a difference to parents who are already parents and future parents for the benefit of themselves and their children. Now that we know Carol's philosophy and that love is not enough for her when it comes to raise a child, it's time to ask her how would she cope in day-to-day -day situations. I've got like a few questions to ask you, like uh, some tools mm -hmm. to have a little box. Can we say too much to a child that we love him or her? The, the short answer is no. No, you can't tell, you can't, it can't be too much telling a child that you love them. However, if it comes after that they've done something good, then they might associate it with that. Do you know what I mean? Okay, I love you because you make what they yes. like. So it's just, yeah. I love you. And they will feel it also, you know, the other thing that um, can definitely help parents a lot is to understand and have knowledge of their children's love language. So you're talking about love. And, and your own. I don't know if you ever read um, The Five Love Languages, uh, Gary yeah. Chapman. Yes. And uh, understanding that can make a huge difference. 
to how we deal with our child. Can you talk about it, about the five for the yes. people? Yes, uh, so the know. five love languages are uh, touch, gifts, words of appreciation, services rendered, and time. Like, you know, really presence, time, one-on-one. -on -one. And so as children, we need all five. As adults, we need all five. But when we become an adult, there is one that screams to us that we are loved. And so if for whatever reason, and, and uh, you, you can notice from your children if you think to how they show you that they love you. So if you have a child that's constantly making you drawings, for you, mama, or picking you flowers, then they might be gifts. And if a child loves to come and cuddle and sit in your arms and touch you all the time, and if you don't, if a day goes by without you touching, they might feel that you don't love them. Or a child that is constantly doing things for you because they like to please you and make you happy, then they, their love language might be services rendered. And so understanding and knowing this, so I mean, my older sister, my parents never knew this, that her love language was time spent. And it's often the first child, uh, the love language will be time because, and they will suffer immensely from the arrival of a second. How do you deal with anxiety on a child? So I've discovered something really lovely that is um, teaching the child to try and self-regulate with the breath. So if we're able to breathe from the nose rather than from the mouth, because anxiety is about fear of the future, right? Worry about what's going to happen. And so it's trying to ground them into what is now. Sometimes we can do things that can help. So my daughter, my 10-year-old, was quite anxious. She was going on a school trip, her, her annual school trip. And for the week that preceded, she was quite anxious. What if I'm, I don't have the right things? And what, what, my suitcase is not packed. And, and I was like, okay, so let's, you want to make a list that might alleviate. So you try and do things that are helpful. And also um, you try and talk about what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst case scenario? and guide them to, so learn how to breathe and put the hand, I have a very lovely um, practice uh, that I got from Mel Robbins, which is put your hand on your heart and just say to yourself while you're breathing deeply, I am safe, I am okay, I am loved. Very, very, and she does this like when she's at school, beautiful. she told me. Yes, very beautiful. Um, my daughter, I've taught her to do this because I can't be, that's the other thing, we can't be with our children all the time. What we can is give them the independence to be with themselves, there for themselves, even when we're not. So we give them the stability, the love that they can keep with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they, they, this voice they hear or the soothing, the calm, the security, they can take it with them. When parents are, what do you do with the children when parents are not on the same page about education? One being old school, strict, and one the and the other one being more Montessori style. Yeah, story of my life. <laughs> uh, well, I became a parent coach as a result because I had to find a way a to communicate to my very authoritarian uh, uh, then husband uh, how what he was doing was damaging, but me telling him was not working. Me, so I started to show. So we tried to find tools to meet in the middle being less attached also to the outcome. So the, the problem is often the, the control issue is when we are so attached to the outcome, when we want our child to be like this, the control, we want them, so we're trying to control them, which is often the case of 
the more authoritarian type of parent. Uh, they want a result. They want the child to behave in a certain way, uh, as they have said and taught. And whereas for me, it's a learning process. And if they make a mistake, all the better. You know, it's a very difficult one, to be perfectly honest. But um, definitely not. Uh, arguing it in front of the children and not um, trying to just let it go because I think there's more damage that is done to the children from seeing parents fight and argue than from how we are being with them and try to have as much space as possible so that the, each parent can be themselves with their children without the other one being on top and you know criticizing, commenting and... Uh, yeah. In case of a divorce with lots of fights, what do you do? as a parent. Yeah, that's the other thing as well. So I, we made a conscious choice, the father of my children and myself, to not have a fight. Uh, I mean, in a divorce, there's, there's, there's three things. There's the children, the custody, there's money, and then there's the separation of how it's going to be done. And we chose not to fight. Now, it's hard, really hard, but that means letting go. And we did not fight on on custody and we did not fight on money because we otherwise we would still be in legal battles and so we were able to I mean I'm proud in a way to say that I have we have succeeded at our divorce way better than we did at our marriage and I, as a result people said how are the children dealing with this well actually they're doing much better now that we have separated because we're doing much better and that's what parents forget is Children feed off of how we are doing with ourselves. And that's the first map of uh, how we behave, is the modeling. And not modeling only towards others, but how we treat ourselves. So if they see that, that we're doing okay, they will be doing fine. Or much better, for sure. So parents need to be aware that, you know, of course, you, we cannot control how the other is uh, behaving. So it's, uh, divorce sadly brings out the worst in people. And every situation, obviously, is... is a conflict is hard, yeah. Yeah, and, but trying to, yeah, trying to avoid, but not at our own cost, not at, uh, you know, yeah. And not, at, not, not trying not to get the children to pay too high a price. Because fighting over custody, for example, supposedly for the benefit of the children, ends up being that the children are in the middle of it and they are suffering from it. Should we say everything to our children? Should we show all our weaknesses? Two questions. Uh, say everything to our children. If they ask something, so they have awareness of what's going on in, about that specific subject, I would say to be as honest as possible with reservations with regards to their age. But honesty is, for me, is key. And if they know, because they will find out later, and then it will all replay. So what? They've lied to me. If they lied to me about this, they might have lied to me about lots of things. So they, suddenly their whole childhood might take on a whole new meaning. So I think being honest, yes. And being, showing our vulnerability to our children makes us more human and makes us more real to them. And we are modeling how to live with this our mistakes, uh, what we've learned from them. And we can, of course, if we can turn them into something positive, that's even more of a learning for us as well as for them. How do you help your children uh, to grow, to um, be self-confident? By giving them the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from them, which means not 
blaming them and admonishing them and just really allowing them to learn from that mistake because that is what's going to allow them to to really internalize and, and for it to stay with them. And also to learn that uh, self-confidence comes from the inside out, from effort, from really pushing ourselves to do something that we didn't think we were capable of doing and showing the child the path, showing the child where they come from. So a child that is learning to do cartwheels, for example, will first do a really terrible one. And then we'll, oh, the week after, it's like, oh, man, look, you, last week you didn't know how to do this. And what if you tell me, how, which hand do you put in first? So asking them about the process so that they can actually see that they've actually learned something. So self-esteem, self self, it's not the same as self-confidence, but it comes from the inside out. And so us clapping and telling our children, oh, the whole, the whole concept of praise, it's the most misunderstood concept in parenting because of course you want to tell your child you're proud of them and they've done so well, but you have to be really careful how you praise because that can also leave them stuck <laughs> in a fixed mindset of, ooh, if I'm smart, if my parents think I'm smart, I want them to think I'm smart, you know, I, I don't want to lose this title, this, um, what they think of me. And so um, I will not take a risk at not looking or being smart. So they stay stuck. Okay, in a position. In a place of not trying out, not pushing themselves, not venturing, you know. So the way we praise them, it can make a huge difference to whether they develop this. So it's a whole, this is all Carol Dweck's uh, growth mindset. Uh, philosophy and so how we are with their mistakes and with their successes uh, can make a huge difference to allowing them to develop that inner self-esteem. You're more specialized into small children but do you have a view on how to uh, raise teenagers? Well yes I mean I have two <laughs> out of three at home and I've so, done obviously as you can imagine a lot of reading uh, around the subject and I try you know um, my whole philosophy of raising children again like I said at the beginning you know we we guide them we walk by their side and we follow them and that that works for all ages right and um, pretty much the whole philosophy of how we are being with the way we listen the way we connect this is important at all ages Now, what's different is, of course, a teenager. The, the, so we think, when parents of small children think, oh, I can't wait for them to grow up so that they grow out of this phase of whatever it is that they're in. Well, as they grow up, two things happen. Their problems become bigger. <laughs> as small they children, become, small problems. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And their mistakes become bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, mistakes suffer from inflation. So if we have not, I mean, the ideal thing is to allow them to make as many mistakes as possible when they're little, because when they get bigger, the mistakes get more and more costly. A child that is uh, three or four that is going too fast on their little scooter that falls, if we allow them to remember the fall by not saying, I told you you shouldn't have gone fast, and just say, ooh, that must really hurt. Is it uh, a lot or a little that it hurts? And just giving them the empathy, yes. then they will probably, their body will remember that going fast can lead to pain. Whereas if we never allowed them to fall, 
because we want to protect them, because we don't want them to get hurt, if we never allow them to learn from the mistake, because we are the ones who don't allow them to learn from the mistake, then at 17, 18, whatever, they borrow your car, and then it's, you know... Bigger problems. Way bigger problem going fast in a car than in a scooter. And then there are the parents who will not allow their children to make these mistakes. And I remember I had a near conflict with a mother whose child was so happy climbing a tree, but a tree that was a meter and a, a, meter and a half high. And she was like, come down now! And I said, but he looks so happy. And this is like, ideally, you know, you could say, hold on tight, and uh, rather than you're going to fall, you're going to fall. Because, of course, when we tell our children they're going to fall, what happens? They fall. <laughs> because the brain doesn't hear do not. It hears just fall. The brain doesn't hear negatives. And so the child falls. And she says, well, you didn't see his friend. He, his shoulder came out of, you know, I mean, he broke his shoulder. And of course, you can't argue with a mother who wants to protect their child from being hurt. But the flip side of that is that this child will not learn how to develop that inner strength and self-esteem. I think it's time for uh, the harvest of the day. Carol, if something could be changed quite easily, we're not like talking about changing uh, complicated systems and everything, but if something could be made easily and that would make the world a better place tomorrow, what would it be for you? To introduce into schools what it means to become a parent. A, a programmer course For young adults? For young adults, or even for adolescents, so that they can actually, it could also make a huge difference to how they view their parents. And they probably won't remember it, but um, you know how it is, uh, they won't remember it when they become parents, or they might, it might come back to them, especially if they do it a second time. So there's something, you know, when you learn something, if you want to go, if you wanted to go into your long-term memory, you need to read it or hear it at least three plus times. That's the Montessori teacher talking. Probably. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so if they've heard it once when they were at, uh, at school and then they inquire again before they become a parent, then there's more of a chance that it might actually, you know, infuse their being. Because it's all about how we are being more than what we are doing with our children. And putting a seed. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you, Carol, for being with us. Thank you very and, much for uh, having me. Enjoy harvest. Oh, I am. <laughs> yeah, and I will. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Carole Debanis' philosophy about education and all the tips she shared. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram Harvest Series. Next episode of the podcast will be a little gift to end the season five of Harvest Series with... Gabor Maté again about how to be authentic. Until next time. <laughs>